1: I'm Julia Borston, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
2: Good Wednesday morning and welcome to Tech Check, our new show about tech here at CNBC. I'm Deirdre Bozo with Carl Quintanilla and John Ford. As always, a huge show today, history for crypto. As Coinbase goes public, we are awaiting the first trade and a monster valuation that is only getting bigger. Plus, Slack CEO Stuart Butterfield will join us on how we work and communicate. And some new numbers from TikTok reveal just what is underneath the hood at this company.
3: Let's uh, take a quick check on the market as we wait for Coinbase to open. NASDAQ, about a percentage point away from a record high. S&P is already there. Moderna is higher. Travel plays, trip and booking holdings higher. On the downside, now Facebook off by more than 1% and Intel's having a tough week. Down for the third straight day, down 6% since Monday, Carl.
4: All right, John, today's most important tech story, obviously, is Coinbase going public in a direct listing, potentially valuing the company at $65 billion or more as it becomes the first major crypto business to go public in the United States. Investors are hailing it as a bit of a watershed moment for crypto, attracting new investors, encouraging institutions to play in the crypto space. And some recent private trades have valued the company at almost $100 billion. Of course, on this morning on Squawk Box, co-founder and CEO, Brian Armstrong talked about the company's connection to crypto. Here's what he said.
3: We're also kind of uh, what you might call uh, an indexed
4: bet or a levered bet on the crypto space more broadly, because we're kind of we're selling picks and shovels. You know, we're helping people access and use this new technology. So I think we're going to grow along with the crypto space. But if we keep growing share, um,
3: then we'll sort of be an addition of, of that on top of just the price of crypto, hopefully.
4: So many topics to delve into, John. Obviously, there's the way in which central banks are viewing the space right now. Uh, Certainly institutions, half of their business profitability and how they're going to manage, John, what we at least historically have expected in crypto. And that is wild price swings of the currency itself.
3: Yeah, Carl, uh, I'm just reminded that it was five and a half years ago I met Brian Armstrong for coffee in San Francisco. One of the things that struck me then about him was his level of conviction. He told me he was taking his full salary in Bitcoin at the time and not converting it to cash. And I thought, wow, that's somebody who's putting his money where its mouth is. It uh, turned out to be a pretty smart bet. He also gave me a dollar worth of Bitcoin uh, in a Coinbase account to show me how Coinbase worked. You know, I, I, every once in a while I take a look at that, right? It, it's worth $221.30 <laughs> Uh, this morning. Well, that's where we will. Uh, John, there's, yeah, Deidre.
2: <laughs> there's there's got to be a way to NFT that, you know, one Bitcoin <laughs> that Brian Armstrong gave you years ago. Uh, guys, I love what Mike Novogratz said on Squawk Box this morning. He said that this listing today, of course, we're going to get caught up in the price and the technicals, but it's about more than Coinbase and Bitcoin. It's really, he called it the Netscape moment for crypto. I tweeted this out. and I got a lot of backlash saying. Uh, It's not a flattering comparison. Look at what happened to Netscape. But the point being that this is really a moment, the beginning, like Netscape was the beginning of the internet. Perhaps what we're seeing is the beginning of crypto in the mainstream, it's Carl alluded to, this is about decentralized finance. It's about central bank digital currencies. It's about blockchain and NFTs, guys, which we have covered so closely over the last few weeks. So we look at the indication, which, by the way, is $350 a share, 40% premium to that reference price, puts the valuation at above $90 billion. So we are looking towards a monster debut here. But we should keep that in mind. This is about more than where Coinbase is, tra- is trading today?
3: Oh, yeah, well, well, let's start with that. Uh, joining us now, Silicon Valley super angel Ron Conway, early investor in Coinbase and Stripe, but also Google, Airbnb, DoorDash, Square, Pinterest, just to name a few. Ron, good morning. Uh, you know, we, we can talk a lot about Coinbase and Brian Armstrong and the whole company, what what it represents for crypto right now, but. Let's start from the investor perspective, the public market investor perspective. What do you have to believe about Coinbase to buy it for what looks like it's going to be $350 a share here? Does it have to do for transactions on the Internet, what Google did for information?
5: Well, yes, I absolutely believe that Coinbase is is the Google for the crypto economy and opens this huge opportunity to consumers. You know, if you start at the very top of the funnel, look at the market size uh, for the crypto economy. Last year, it was seven hundred seventy eight billion headed to over a trillion. And the crypto economy is in its infancy. So the crypto economy is the next multi-trillion-dollar opportunity in innovation, and if people look at the size of the opportunity, then the market caps of these companies looks a little more reasonable. But Ron, what we're condition- in an inflated market, no matter what. Yeah. So all companies are worth uh, a pretty high 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 price today. But when you look at the size of the market of crypto, uh, I, I, th- I think they're analogous.
3: What convinces you that Coinbase is the Google of crypto and not the Yahoo? Because it is early. You know, Yahoo did well for a while. There was lots of competition and there were better ideas. I and mean, we've got Square. We've got Robinhood. There are a lot of companies and then established uh, finance companies that that are now kind of piling into this crypto area. What sets Coinbase apart?
5: Well, what really sets Coinbase apart is it is a crypto-only company. It's very focused on, on providing crypto consumer products worldwide. All these other companies crypto is an add-on. So Coinbase is what we call a crypto first company. And that focus is what is making them a market leader. The brand that they have built, you know the power of brand, you can never put a price tag on. And Coinbase uh, already has a great reputation and a great brand with consumers. It focuses on delivering a user-friendly product that makes it easy for consumers to, to get into this exciting new market. They are the user-friendly doorway uh, to, to crypto.
4: Ron, more broadly, uh, Mike Novogratz was on this morning, and he said at uh, $2 trillion, uh, crypto makes up about half a percent of global wealth. And his argument was, if you don't think that's going to at least two or three percent in the next two to three years, you're not paying attention. Is that a legitimate way to look at it?
5: Yes. Yes. That's a very legitimate and smart way of explaining to people the size of this opportunity, that at two trillion, we're, we're we've only uh, conquered a few percentage uh, of the market space. It's, it's a huge, huge opportunity.
2: Ron, good morning. It's Deirdre. You call Coinbase the Google for the crypto economy, but we know that Google does much more uh, than search. There's a digital advertising business. They're going into many others. Um, few people think that Coinbase can maintain these sort of exorbitant fees and margins that it is seeing now. So where does it need to diversify to maintain that status to really become, you know, the platform for crypto.
5: Well, Coinbase is constantly adding new uh, crypto services and new coins available to its service. So it is expanding its product line, you know, very, very rapidly. They're absolutely the leader in the space
2: leader in the space, particularly when it comes to, you know, the cryptocurrencies that we're most familiar with. But how does Coinbase, if it does at all, play into central bank digital currencies? We've been talking about China creating its own digital yuan, but it's creating its own platform and its own digital wallet, right? So how does Coinbase get involved with these central bank currencies?
5: Well, I think that's one of the the uh, opportunities for Brian Armstrong and Coinbase now that they have built this amazing brand and after the IPO today to be an evangelist for this industry since Coinbase is the market leader and talking to other countries and opening lines of communication and educating them on the opportunity and how the tech industry and the policymakers can work together to make this a a great opportunity f- for America, you know, for America first, and and we should be watching uh, what China is doing um, because we want to be the technology leader in the in the in the crypto economy. There's going to be millions of jobs created from this new trillion dollar industry. And we want those jobs to be in the United States. And and Coinbase is poised to lead that charge with all the other companies in this ecosystem.
4: Armstrong, Ron, this morning on our air, uh, talked about the way in which central bankers are viewing crypto in general, and it did, it did sound a bit like he was frustrated that, in his view, they are too focused on the potential for illegal or illicit use of crypto as a main uh, function of the tool. I wonder if you think that's been overplayed, and if uh, central bankers need to consider some of the other elements of it.
5: Yes, for sure. The central bankers and the crypto industry should be communicating with each other a lot more closely. And, you know, with every new technology boom, there's the good and there's the bad. And some people are focusing too much on the bad of crypto. Uh, It's interesting. Mike Morrell, who is a former head of the CIA, just released a study uh, that he conducted, that the 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 postulation that crypto is being used for for widespread uh, uh, bad act bad actors it just isn't true. Hmm. You know, every transaction on uh, the blockchain is recorded, and uh, law enforcement. Th- that's a good thing for law enforcement. Right, Everything can be tracked. Well, Ron, And this study to, from Mike Morell, very, very interesting today.
3: That is interesting. Uh, back to the investor perspective, I see this curious trend in crypto where people who got rich off of Bitcoin and Ethereum are you know, buying NFT-backed digital art. I suspect they're buying into this offering. Is there the chance that there's kind of an, an internal... Crypto systemic risk here where if one crypto type asset uh, founders in some way, they're going to be people who have their other assets and investments affected. Is that something that people should think about as we start to see companies like Coinbase go public?
5: Well, what we need to think about is that the crypto economy today in its infancy is probably a couple thousand companies in the crypto economy. And some of those companies are going to do really well, just like uh, standard technology internet companies today. Some of those companies will do really well, and some of those companies will flounder. Uh, so it's it's like the rest of industry, really really no better and, and no worse.
3: All right. Just got to pick the right ones. Uh, you you picked this one at the right time for sure, no matter uh, what the price action is today. Ron Conway, <laughs> yeah, thank you. You know,
5: SV Angel... Uh, our fund, SV Angel, we invested in Coinbase uh, when Brian was just starting the company and went to visit Y Combinator, the the world famous accelerator founded by Paul Graham and, and Jessica Livingston, and that Y Combinator has birthed so many. Iconic companies in the technology industry, and Brian started there. And SV Angel, we invested in all the follow-on rounds, and and Coinbase has educated us and this entire industry about about the benefits of the of the crypto economy. Coinbase is the pioneer, um, and Netscape was referred to earlier. And SV Angel got its start by saying we only invest in internet startups. Well, until Netscape came along and opened the user interface to the Internet, there wasn't a way for consumers to interact yep. with with the Internet.
3: And, and notably, uh, yeah, you know, it, Mark Andreessen is, is all over uh, Coinbase as well. So it all goes full circle. Uh, Ron Conway, thank you. Thank
6: There's you.
2: There's a reason we call him the godfather of Silicon Valley. Uh, Today's crowdsource, our segment is a good one where we ask you to participate in the show. So send us your best Coinbase memes, videos, Reddit posts, commentary, you name it. Send us what you got. Tweet it at us at CNBC Tech Check, and we will show you some of the best answers later on in the show. Jack Dorsey already mixing it up, responding to an article titled Coinbase's $100 billion IPO provides an alternative alternative investment to Bitcoin with the comment, why do we even need an alternative?
4: Later this hour, guys, Coinbase board member Katie Hahn is going to join us to talk about today's listing. And after the break, do not miss Slack CEO Stuart Butterfield is going to join us. We are just getting started here on TechCheck. What does it mean to be
2: rich?
4: Get a gut check here on Shares of Discovery. Faber told you before the top of the hour, Credit Suisse unloading another $2 billion worth of stock linked to its Argos exposure. That includes a big position in disco uh, That stock down almost 20% in two months.
2: And Coinbase, of course, going public via direct listing this morning, indicating it could open at $351 a share, well above its $250 reference price. Our next guest company was one of the first major players in tech to forgo the traditional IPO route when it debuted on the NYSE back in 2019 through a direct listing. Stuart Butterfield is the co-founder and CEO of Slack and joins us now. Stuart, good morning. Thanks for being with us.
7: Good morning. Thanks for having me and congrats on the new show.
2: Thank you. Now, let's start with direct listings. They put more power into the hands of retail investors, take out the intermediaries in a bigger way than traditional IPOs. So it's not a coincidence that Coinbase is going public in this manner. It's in the spirit of crypto uh, and decentralized finance. Was any of that running through your head um, when you decided, and you were only the second company to do so, pursue a direct listing?
7: You know, I think the single biggest factor is actually whether you need to raise capital or not. Uh, and if you don't, then a traditional public offering doesn't work so well. I think there's can be a whole host of other reasons, and I don't want to do any armchair psychoanalysis, but I think you're right. In this case, there is an element of democratization to it.
2: Now, obviously, disruption, decentralization, that has happened in the workplace over the last year. Everyone seems to agree that the future is some kind of hybrid model, but some big companies, notably Google are looking at, I suppose you could call it less remote work in the future. Do you think that that's a mistake? What will become the new norm?
7: Well, I, I think there's two kind of fundamental truths that people seem to be missing in this conversation. And the first one came from our chief people officer, our the first executive that we hired who didn't live in San Francisco, the city where our headquarters is. And uh, it, she asked, When we talk about what's going to be different, are we talking about from now or are we talking about from February 2020? And you can't unscramble an egg. So I think we need to talk about the differences from today. Today, we're working the way we're working. And for most organizations and the most knowledge workers, it is working. What we can look forward to, and I think, is uh, some relief some amelioration of the global pandemic it means things like people can go visit their grandparents and they can have kids in school and they can have nice dinners in crowded restaurants they can go on vacations and all that stuff so we have what we're doing today but life is better and then on top of that we have the offices as an additional tool to help align people to collaborate to, to um to become more productive and the second truth is um the number of days that people spend in the office, I think, is the wrong axis to look at it. Because if you say people are going to come to the office one or two days a week, you're presupposing that everyone lives within commuting distance of the office. So I think the real way to think about this is being digital first. And that means leaders investing as much time and energy into the digital infrastructure that supports productivity and collaboration as they do to office leases and build out conference rooms and all that. And right now, the ratio is, you know, one to 10. I think we need to make it 10 to one.
3: Huh. Well, Stu, that, that seems complicated. For some companies, I mean, you've had, in a way, a distributed workforce from the beginning, kind of Canada, San Francisco, right? But, you know, there are a lot of companies in Silicon Valley that are really based on this campus model, this idea of keeping people on site and interacting with each other as much as possible. You're in the process, you know, regulatory blessings uh, withstanding, uh, of combining with Salesforce that's made a big location bet on San Francisco. So how do you Mm -hmm. expect to navigate that? Over the coming months, um, you know that that blending of cultures with a distributed and, to some degree, uh, at least physically disconnected reality.
7: It's a great question. And I think that while we didn't have that many remote workers before February 2020, and to be clear, I would put myself in the camp of people who back then thought what we were doing today is impossible. And sometimes when you need to do something that's impossible, uh, or you thought it was impossible, and it turns out to be possible, there's opportunities to reimagine. And I think that humans are pretty... Old habits die hard. Right. And, and I think we get pretty stuck in a groove. We, we stick with the defaults. A lot of the management techniques and processes around collaboration that we use up to February 2020 are kind of legacies of the birth of the modern corporations and so going all the way back to the 19th century. But even on a campus, I mean, do you have to be in the same room? Do you have to be on the same floor? Do you have to be in the same building? Do you have to be in the same campus? Do you have to be in the same city? We've proven now that we can do it. So, what can we retain from this world um, when we get the additional flexibility and you know, kind of power of having offices? I think you ask a lot of people, spending less time commuting sounds good, spending more time with family sounds good, having more flexibility in how people arrange their lives sounds good. And I think that given that that's possible, how do we want to do it? Um, and I will say, you know, Ever, there's going to be a range of opinions. This is a market decision ultimately. A, we want to be able to hire from anywhere in the world. You know, giant pool of talent that today is inaccessible to us because unless someone lived within commuting distance of one of our offices, we just didn't hire them. And the second thing is, employers are going to want or come to expect this kind of flexibility as a kind of a basic benefit. So in the same way that comp- compensation is market driven work from home policies, distributed work policies, or kind of that digital first approach is going to be an expectation that employees demand.
4: Yeah, Stuart, that's interesting. You know, I think Goldman is a really good example of what you're talking about. This morning they had mm-hmm. blowout results. Uh, their trading capital markets business was literally to the moon, and yet on the call, they continue to talk about how, with how much better they would have operated if they had been together in the office. I guess I just wonder what is it you think that is keeping some of these work cultures so insistent that you gotta come back. And I wonder if you've, if you've noticed some, some opinions, Google's a good example, where they've basically set a line and said, okay, you may not have to come in every day, but you need to be within driving distance, let's say, from, from the office.
7: Yeah. And, you know, I think that's going to be a real disadvantage. Um, there's companies like Google that have enormous hubs. We just hired uh, an incredible director of product management, and that person came to Slack partly because they lived in Seattle and they knew at their current employer, they were only going to be able to work on projects that were based in Seattle. And this is a global organization, has offices all over the world. There's all kinds of exciting things to work on, but they're really limited. And, that's bad from two perspectives. I mean, one from the employee's perspective, because it meant enough that they, they took our recruiter's call and we could begin a conversation. But it's obviously bad for the employer, right? And the idea that this is an important initiative, we're going to bet the company on this thing, or we're going to hope that this produces some good results, but we're only willing to hire people from the small metro region, even today, with the knowledge that we, that isn't a real limitation. That's just something that we inherited and kind of a default that is difficult to change.
2: Right. At the same time, though, Google is opening up offices in other places in America. So if you look at that, maybe they have the footprint to do so. But Stuart, I want to ask you, it's been a bit of an experiment for you guys as well to figure out what tools work in this next era in a hybrid workplace. You guys introduced a public messaging platform and then quickly walked it back on concerns that messages of abuse could be sent with relative ease. Did that scale back or slow down Slack's ambitions to move beyond internal messaging? Are you guys ready to become sort of a social work platform with all of the moderation considerations that go along with that?
7: Yeah, I think there's some uh, some, some real confusion there and, and entirely our responsibility. The messaging between people is not something we walk back. It's growing incredibly quickly. The number of organizations, 74,000 uh, paid customers who are participating in Slack Connect has grown over 100% in the last year. But the number of connected endpoints, so the, the density of the network has grown even faster, almost 250%. What we changed was a little bit of the process of sending an invitation to someone to connect. But it's double opt-in both sides, There's all kinds of of security controls, and it's absolutely not intended to be a social network. It's not letting you talk to anyone. It's letting you talk to the people that you work with closely who happen to be employed by someone else. So so if you're a marketing director, that might be a creative agency. If you're an accountant, that might be your auditors. You know, there's a whole range of um, relationships that are really important to the internal workings of an organization, but that work with customers or partners or vendors.
2: Right. Right. Well, Stuart, thank you so much for being with us today. Stuart Butterfield, uh, co-founder and CEO of Slack.
3: Thank you. Now, later this hour, we've got a reality check on TikTok. Plus, Julia Borston is with us next. Julia, it's a big day for disruption.
1: Indeed, John. We have been watching Coinbase as a CNBC, dis- CNBC disruptor since 2014. I'll break down how much that company has grown and why more Disruptor 50 IPOs are coming. That's up after the break.
4: Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa. Julia Borston joins us as well, of course. Uh, we did get some record highs on the Dow S&P today, but Nasdaq settled back negative. Peloton, Zoom, some of those work-from-home names get a breather after yesterday's enthusiasm. Tesla, Facebook down about 2%. Coinbase, of course, remains the big story of the morning, now indicated 355. And that does imply a valuation north of 90 billion dollars.
2: We'll keep our eye on that and time now for a CNBC News update. Rahel Solomon has that for us. Rahel,
8: over to you. Hey, Deidre. Hello, everyone. Earnings season is off to a fast start with big beats from three major banks, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo and JPMorgan Chase, all topping their earnings estimates by 50 percent or more. Moderna is laying out its plans to fight COVID-19 and possible future variants. The company CEO says he wants to make sure that there are vaccine booster shots available this fall. Hundreds of companies and top executives have signed a letter opposing legislation that makes it harder for eligible voters to cast ballots. Backers include Apple, Ford and Bank of America. The group took out two page ads in The New York Times and Washington Post. And Bernie Madoff, the man who pleaded guilty to running the largest Ponzi scheme in history, has died in prison. When the scheme unraveled in 2008, the money manager's clients thought they had an estimated $65 billion in their accounts. Only about $13 billion has been recovered. Bernie Madoff, dead at the age of 82. You're now up to date. John, I'll send it back to you.
3: Rahel, thank you. Now, in today's debut, Coinbase could be worth around $100 billion. Seven years ago, it made its debut on our CNBC Disruptor 50 list. Uh, Julia Borsten started that list and has more on the company's path to a listing for us today. Julia.
1: Well, John, Coinbase has been on the Disruptor 50 list three times in the list eight years, and it's grown from 1.3 million consumer wallets that it had back when it debuted on the list in 2014 to now it has 56 million verified users. Coinbase will be the 62nd Disruptor 50 company to go public. It originally priced at $65.3 billion. So that would have made it the second largest Disruptor 50 exit behind Uber. But the direct listing, as you mentioned, is now indicated to open around $350, which would mean a valuation of more than $92 billion. And that would be the largest valuation of any of the Disruptor's public offerings. Now, we are expecting more Disruptor IPO and direct listings. Pitchbook reporting just today that overall VC investment spiked 93% in the first quarter, with three quarters of those investment dollars going into late stage deals. Now, what that points to is more exit activity coming. We have already seen a record number of public offerings this year. 50 public offerings, 50 IPOs in the first quarter. Now, that's more than double the range of between nine to 21 first quarter public listings that we've seen over the past five years. Now, there are some other disruptors that are in the pipeline. UiPath is set to start trading on the NYSE next week. Robinhood filed for an IPO on the NASDAQ. And both 23andMe and WeWork are both going to go public via SPACs. Guys, back over to you, Carl.
4: All right, uh, Julia, don't go too far away. Uh, CNBC.com with a scoop uh, that you might not have noticed. GOP donors and leaders discussing plans to take on big tech during a retreat at President uh, Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort. The reporter behind that story, Brian Schwartz, joins us this morning. Brian, great to have you. Uh, uh, the phrase sort of taking on corporate America and big tech uh, is sort of loaded. How much of this really involves investing in a social platform that would tail- uh, that would cater to conservatives?
6: Well, thanks for having me, guys. I would say that, you know, this is really starting to boil up at this point, these conversations um, amongst Republican business leaders and donors uh, about investing into such a company. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk in conservative circles about, you know, conservatives feeling that they've been censored on Twitter and Facebook. So at Mar-a-Lago this past weekend between business leaders, there's, there, there was this discussion about investing into a new uh, media platform, a social media platform, that could be a counter to that. Um, you know, I know we've seen sort of things like this with parlor, I guess, as another, you know, example, but the talk is growing. This is really kind of in the early stages, but that's where we are at this point regarding this, you know, potential new platform that may come out quite soon.
1: Brian, I'm so curious about this because, of course, there wasn't only Parler, but there was also Gab, which was known for being a home to more conservative viewpoints. But isn't part of the problem is that you really need a lot of people on these platforms and a platform like Facebook just has pretty much everybody on it. Are they talking about really founding one themselves or finding a small platform and and investing it? It seems like this is going to be a, a, a tough challenge for them to actually get something meaningfully off the ground.
6: Yeah, I think you're right. You just mentioned a few examples that are right in the money for what we're talking about here. I mean, the, the bottom line is this. I mean, they, they see that there's a, I think, a market here for this kind of so-called cancel culture stuff that they are talking about. And, you know, they see these platforms, these new platforms that they want to invest into that are social media based as a place where conservatives could come and voice their opinions, where they think that they can't do that on Facebook, Twitter and, and otherwise, frankly. So, you know that's kind of where they're coming from from the business perspective. But you're right. You know, going forward for them, there's clearly going to be some hurdles to move ahead with this. I think they realize that these business executives. We mentioned a few of them uh, in the story on CNBC.com. Uh, that's why this is such in the early stages at this point. And that's why they're trying to figure out. What the next best move is, like you said, is it going to be a brand new company or is it going to be something smaller, something a smaller type social media company that they invest into going forward? That's still up for debate at this point.
3: Brian, we say conservatives I'm reminded of that line from The Princess Bride. You know, that word, I, I do not think it means what you think it means. Like so, so much of what we're hearing out of like Josh Hawley lately, the idea that companies that have a market cap of more than 100 billion dollars wouldn't be able to do M&A at all because they're, they're woke. I mean, Coinbase is about to bump up against that perhaps on its first day. And there, are, there are companies like AMD, Snap that are already, you know, they wouldn't be able to grow by M&A. It seems like it could potentially, you know, outside of free market capitalism, uh, crush some innovation in this, con- in this country if you put that kind uh, of shackle uh, on companies. I wonder like, what economically really is happening in the GOP right now.
6: You know, you're, you're 100% right on that. and I, I don't think I ever, would, I ever thought that I was gonna say something where Republicans now are starting to push back on big business. I never thought we'd be talking about things like this. You look back into uh, 2017, 2016, um, where Donald Trump and Republicans worked, you know, hand in hand with many big businesses and CEOs to push this tax cut that we're now debating right now with Joe Biden's infrastructure plan. You know they worked very well together for years. They were they were allies, and really, what seems to have pushed this over the edge on the Republican side, particularly the Republican business side, is what what's been happening in Georgia and in other states. I think we have to keep that in mind. This conversation, where you know, you know, look, there's been different voting laws being passed. Corporations and executives have come out and have pushed back on that, and I think Republicans are kind of responding in kind, as we can see right now.
3: Okay. Uh, Brian Schwartz, thank you. Coinbase board member and Andreessen Horowitz partner, Katie Hahn, joins TechCheck right after this break. And you can listen to us on the go, download, subscribe, and enjoy the TechCheck podcast available wherever you get your podcasts. We are back in tune.
4: So as we wait for Coinbase to uh, go public in this direct listing, take a look at some of the investors that may be getting ready to cash in. Among the names, rapper Nas, whose investment could reportedly net him $100 million. Kevin Durant, uh, poised for a big payout. NBA star investing in Coinbase at a $1.6 billion valuation. Company, of course, now worth 65X. LinkedIn's Reid Hoffman, Reddit co-founder Alexis Ohanian, also among those betting on the crypto exchange's success. And speaking of early investors, ahead of the first trade, our Kate Rooney has a very special guest. Hey, Kate.
9: Hey, Carl. We're joined now by Katie Hahn. She's a partner at Andreessen Horowitz. She also leads the firm's crypto funds and is a Coinbase board member. Katie, welcome. Thanks so much for being here. It's a big day for crypto. Good morning, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. Of course, great to see you. Let's start with how you met Coinbase. This is fascinating. You were a DOJ prosecutor and at one point were asked to essentially investigate and then shut down Bitcoin. How did you go from that to sitting on the board of the largest US Bitcoin exchange?
10: Well, you know, I think that's a real testament, Kate, to this company and its commitment to responsible innovation. Uh, And I think that's been one of the keys to Coinbase's success. You know, early days, Brian Armstrong, and Fred Ursham, the co-founders, always took costly, frankly, compliance, uh, security, and regulations very seriously, even from day one. And it's proof that even in Silicon Valley, I think it pays to think long term. Those guys certainly were um, from the beginning, not always to move fast and break things, especially when you're dealing with uh, customer funds. And so, you know, not many uh, founders in Silicon Valley would have invited a former federal prosecutor who they didn't even know to join their board of directors. Um, But I think that's really a testament to the company uh, that they would invite in kind of the government, right? You know, people from the government. Um, And there's an interesting story there too, Kate. That is that when Fred and Brian first started the company, they had uh, lawyers who were telling them they didn't need to get licenses in the jurisdictions where they did business. And, you know, they got rid of that firm very quickly. Um, So they've always taken regulation seriously since the day, the very days um, that Coinbase began.
2: Katie, good morning. It's Deirdre. That's a fascinating uh, story that you told and uh, interesting to look at it in the context of other sort of companies coming up, newcomers and their relationship with regulators. I have a bit of a media question for you. We're going to get back to Coinbase, um, but I couldn't help but note that Uh, Brian Armstrong and yourself and Andreessen Partner are on CNBC today amid discussions of legacy media disruption and your own firm's push to drive their own media strategy. So I wonder, can our audience see these interviews as evidence of the value of mainstream media, real traditional interviews and questions?
10: Well, I think, look, today, Deirdre, it's a historic moment for Coinbase and not just for Coinbase, but for the entire crypto ecosystem. I mean, you mentioned Andreessen Horwitz, and I think one of the things that we look for in founding teams at Andreessen Horwitz are teams that are very visionary and also that can execute. And that's what you have here in Coinbase. You have an absolute case study in entrepreneurship. I mean, it's one case study that I know I'll teach at the Stanford Business School. I teach a class on crypto, and I know I'll teach this case study someday because you had here in Brian Armstrong and his founding team uh, a vision, and they stuck to that vision for nine years through ups and downs, through various price cycles, where some came and went, uh, some others pivoted. This team has been there from day one, uh, and they've stayed the course. And I think that's why you see Coinbase being where it is today.
9: And Katie, speaking of today in the direct listing, there are plenty of skeptics on the price tag in particular. Two big things I've been hearing about this week, transaction fees and that revenue concentration, how should investors think about the risk that others could come in, compete with Coinbase and use lower fees or essentially offer free trading?
10: Yeah, look, I think it's just a positive reflection of how big the space is becoming. And you are seeing crypto really mainstream at this point with all of the institutions and customers coming in. Um, You know, one of the things I've seen about Coinbase that's been true during the four years that I've been on the board is this is a team who can manage revenues, um, and who can manage you know, expenses and continue to grow through a variety of price cycles. One of the things about Brian Armstrong is he's very focused on the long-term vision of the company. You know, Coinbase added 20 assets just in the last year, and they are diversifying away um, from just transaction fee revenue. I think one of the exciting things that I see at and Horowitz happening in the crypto space is there are entirely new industries, Kate, That are being built, whether you're talking about decentralized finance or DeFi, as we call it in crypto or the NFT space, which has gotten a lot of coverage lately. And we can speak about Coinbase is really a portal to this entirely new crypto economy. And I think we are still very much on the ground floor. I think Coinbase is very focused on the long term vision of that crypto economy.
4: And that is why it's uh, so central to our coverage today, Katie. We thank you. Uh, Kate Rooney, our thanks to you as well. Hope you'll come back uh, early and often. By the way, uh, more great interviews coming today to kind of help you understand the story behind Coinbase and crypto. You can catch the company's co-founder, Fred Urshan, on closing bell this afternoon at 3 o'clock Eastern time. Now, as we head to
3: break, checking in on shares of SAP, raising projections for the year after first quarter earnings showed strong progress in cloud sales. You can see it there up about a percent. And next, a reality check on TikTok. Some new data on just how many teens our users might surprise you. Tech check is back in two.
2: Time for a reality check. An internal TikTok presentation has reportedly leaked online, and it is full of information. The company presents to potential advertisers. The company says 47 percent of current users have bought something they've seen on the platform. That is out of a user base of more than 100 million in the U.S. and 730 million worldwide. Now, the U.S. ad business up more than 500 percent this year. And how about this? Nearly 60 percent of TikTok's users are under the age of 24 with 17 percent between the ages of 13 and 17, giving the platform a significant base to build upon as it continues to scale, Carl.
4: Yeah, some uh, viewers yesterday said maybe the most undercovered tech story is the evolution of TikTok. Guys, keep your eyes on Google today. Uh, WebBush adds it to the best ideas list along with an upgrade for Snap and a downgrade for Facebook. Back in a minute.
3: Check Check, or makeover at the top of Stitch Fix with news on Katrina Lake, along with CrowdSource as the internet offers its two cents on Coinbase right after this break. Time for a tech check segment we're calling Persona, where we highlight the powerful name you need to know about. Stitch Fix has announced a shift in the C-suite, founder and CEO Katrina Lakes handing over the reins of chief executive of the online styling company she founded a decade ago. Just don't be heavily involved as executive chairman and an employee, Lakes still styles customer fixes. When Stitch Fix hit the public markets in 2017, Lake was the youngest woman to take a company public, a title that now belongs to Bumble's CEO Whitney Wolf Hurd. Uh, Stitch Fix stock has performed well over the past three and a half years, up more than 200%. It's been a volatile journey, though, with large sell-offs often following earnings, and the stock down nearly 20% this year. Uh, Stitch Fix president Elizabeth Spaulding is taking the CEO title, by the way, and that official transition going into effect, guys, on August 1st.
2: Yeah, Balding, a longtime Bain executive. Meantime, we asked you delivered a few of our favorite Coinbase memes and commentary that we pulled off the interwebs. This one from Dr. Momo using the infamous weekend performance GIF at the Super Bowl. Coinbase, uh, it's money sign C-O-I-N, is the most utilized platform for crypto purchases. No doubt in my mind, this thing sticks around for years to come and performs as one of the leaders in the fintech space. That's according to his tweet, Carl.
4: (laughs) Uh, Guys, we continue to watch indications on Coinbase. We'll be watching that closely. And by the way, uh, this great week on Tech Check, the inaugural week rolls on Friday. It is Brian Chesky of Airbnb. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech
1: Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.